welcome to the Commune Podcast. My name is Jeff Krasno. I am excited to feature another episode in our new series here on the Commune Podcast called Ask Dr. G. And we are consistently in receipt of so many interesting questions from our Commune community regarding health. And I simply cannot imagine anyone better to answer these various inquiries than my friend, Dr. Sarah Gottfried. So Sarah has been kind enough to lend her considerable experience and knowledge here on the show to addressing these questions. Sarah is a Harvard-educated, board-certified gynecologist, physician, and scientist. She received the moniker of Dr. G from the Philadelphia 76ers, for whom she serves as health coach. She has led commune courses on the topics of perimenopause and menopause, and happily we seem successful in luring her up to commune Topanga on a regular basis where she is leading retreats. So you can be part of this conversation and submit your questions at onecommune.com slash askdrg, that's A-S-K-D-R-G. And to learn even more from Dr. G, you can watch her free commune masterclass, Women, Food, and Hormones, at onecommune.com slash menopause. So we're so grateful to those of you who write us reviews on Apple Podcasts that we created a special offer just for you, 30 days of free commune membership. So that's all access for a whole month. Just scroll down to the review section and tap write a review, then email support at onecommune.com with a screenshot of your review and you'll receive free all access for 30 days. Note that if you're on your laptop, you'll need to click listen on Apple Podcasts to open the app. And while you're there, make sure you're subscribed. So in this episode, Dr. G and I demystify the menstrual cycle. Now this cycle, like so many cycles in nature, is simply fascinating once you begin to unpack it. So we discuss what is happening hormonally and physically across the different stages of the cycle and the incredible communication that is happening between the brain and the ovaries. And as a bonus aside, listen up if you want to know what hormonal birth control does to the clitoris. Okay, without further delay, I present to you Dr. Sarah Gottfried. Hi, Sarah. Great to be with you. Hi, Jeff. Great to be with you. So I want to uh, let you know about a club that I'm, that I'm in. This club is a uh, daughter's club. <laughs> There's other men that have to... Um, you know, uh, share my destiny, which is just to be shooting X chromosomes, you know, and, and then dealing with it. Um, so I have three daughters. You have two daughters. So you're an honorary member of the club, even though you're not a father. But I get questions from fathers who have daughters. And um, I have one about demystifying the menstrual cycle. Oh, good. And this is very important for men with daughters or for anyone really to understand because this cycle is so fascinating and we've talked about the miracles of other 
cycles in nature, the carbon cycle, the water cycle, the circadian cycle. Um, this is another just absolutely um, fascinating, self-perpetuating cycle with all sorts of dynamic interrelationships. Um, so hopefully we can, uh, you can unpack this for us in a lighthearted way <laughs> with, uh, you know, for those of us with estrogen footprints at, at home. <laughs> so how do we go about understanding the menstrual cycle? Well, I like that you threw down the gauntlet that we've got to make this fun because there's a lot of science behind the menstrual cycle, but there's also a lot of potential playfulness and ways that we can have fun. So I think of the menstrual cycle as being the sequence of mostly hormone production that is different every day, hmm. every day, very different than those who are born male. Those who are born female who have a menstrual cycle have this experience of totally different relationships between three main hormones, estrogen, progesterone, and testosterone. And that daily change can really affect so many things. Certainly it affects the structure of the female reproductive system. So your uterus, when you have your bleeding associated with your menstrual cycle, uh, there's the ovarian cycle embedded within the menstrual cycle, and that's producing the hormones that we're talking about. Those map to mood, as you may have noticed, as you're surrounded by estrogen, progesterone, and testosterone in your home. It maps to fertility. It maps to, I believe, agency, psychological health, even the microbiome. Hmm. So that's the way I think of it. And I'll say one quick thing, especially for the people who have graduated from having a menstrual cycle, and that is... The menstrual cycle, which starts at menarche, you know, we just talked previously about how menarche is occurring earlier and earlier, now around age 10. The average age of menopause, that's when you have one year with no menstrual cycle. So it's one day, that's menopause, have a party that day, it's very important. And that on average occurs around age 51 or 52. Hmm. So most women have these you know, 41 to 42 years of this daily sequence. And in many ways, I think the menstrual cycle has, it, it has this effect of, I'm now, this is my now opinion. It has this effect of making women accommodate mm. in a way that men don't have to. So we're just so used to these big changes that happen with our hormones every day. And most of us accommodate, accommodate, accommodate as a result of that. And then when you go through menopause and you don't have to accommodate anymore, you're like, okay, here's my truth. <laughs> so that's the sequence. So there's the ovarian part to it. There's the uterine part to it, which we can get to. And one of the analogies I like to use, because a lot of people find that their eyes glaze over when they talk about the menstrual cycle. I think of, you know, on average, the menstrual cycle lasts from 21 to 34 days. That's kind of the textbook definition. If it's less than that, you got to see your gynecologist and see what's up, probably a problem with your hormones. If it's 35 days or longer between your menstrual cycle, that could be polycystic ovary syndrome. Again, you want to see your clinician about that. 
But for if we imagine that 28 day cycle on average, I think of that almost like a year. So bear with me for a moment here. Mm -hmm. And there's four seasons to it. So there's the winter, the spring, the summer, and the fall. And that's the way I like to set up thinking about this. Are you with me? Can we go through these seasons? I'm acquainted with the seasons. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're meeting me just where I am. Oh, that's perfect. Perfect. Yeah. perfect. Okay. Okay. So Jeff, we're in wintertime. So wintertime, the way that the menstrual cycle is described, there's this particular nomenclature, and that is day one is the first day of bleeding with the menstrual cycle. So winter is around day one through five. And that's the average length of the bleeding that occurs at the start of the menstrual cycle. So you've got these cells that are in the uterus that were, I think of them as being grown by estrogen. Estrogen is kind of like bricks. I'm going to put in a few different analogies here. So estrogen is kind of like bricks. Progesterone is kind of like mortar. And then the whole thing, the bricks and the mortar come out from day one to day five. Mm -hmm. So I think of that as the winter time because that's when you shed the lining if you have no fertilized embryo. It's also when progesterone plummets, and it's usually when your estrogen is also at a nadir. So you mm -hmm. have a low point with estrogen and progesterone. So I think of you know winter time where there's not many leaves on the trees unless you live in Topanga. And at that time, that's kind of what the uterus looks like. So you've shed the lining. You're doing that in the first five days, winter. Next, we move on to spring. So that's day six through day 11. That's in many ways the most exciting time because that's a time of preparation. That's when your eggs are getting ready to, um, uh, to be released from follicles in your ovaries. It's when your FSH, follicle-stimulating hormone, starts to rise. It's kind of like the caretaking hormone that's getting little follicles inside your ovaries prepared for the big event, which is ovulation. So that's, that's spring. So summer, I consider mm -hmm. to be ovulation, okay? So summer is basically day 12 to day 14. And here we are in July. And here we are in July. <laughs> I'm ovulating. So ovulation is super exciting. That's when estrogen peaks. So typically estrogen peaks around day 12. And I can tell you for most women, that's when they feel the most fabulous. Mm. So their estrogen is at a peak. That's when they're hungrier for sex. Libido is usually at a peak. Testosterone peaks a little bit before that, typically around day nine, but it starts to get you ready for maybe some sexual intercourse. If you decide that you want to have a baby or to try to conceive. And so everything is kind of built around ovulation. So ovulation, typically between day 12 and 14, you've got the surge of estrogen. Then you have a surge of what's known as luteinizing hormone. And then day 15 through 28 is the fall, the fall. That's the luteal phase. That's when you basically release an egg from the follicle. The follicle then starts to release progesterone. So progesterone peaks, starts to rise around day 15, reaches a peak around day 21 or 22. And I want to circle back to lab testing to look at some of these numbers. But that's a period of time where basically your body is designed to prepare for 
a fertilized egg. Mm -hmm. So this is all really designed around fertility, even though there's lots of women, especially we've been seeing this recently, who decide that they don't want to have a pregnancy. They don't want to have children. So regardless of what you decide to do, you've got this menstrual cycle, these four seasons that you're dealing with, and then you just continue on to the next cycle. So if there's no fertilized embryo, you then move on to day one through five. That is really, really helpful. Um, and I love the analogy. So I have a couple of questions yes. in there. Um, so you mentioned um, progesterone and estrogen being plummeting um, during menstruation, right? And is the plummeting of those hormones in any form of dynamic relationship or interrelationship with other hormones, like you mentioned FSH, which I think is, is a product of the pituitary gland, is what's going on? Is there a seesaw that happens when estrogen and progesterone go down and then FSH goes up? Um, and how, what is the relationship, the push and pull between various hormones there? Great question. So the way I think of it is through feedback loops. Hmm. So I think a seesaw is a nice maybe more simplified way to think of that. So there's this control system that exists between the hypothalamus and the brain, the way that the hypothalamus talks to the pituitary, the way that the pituitary talks to the gonads, the ovaries in this case. And there's this push-pull between these hormones. And it, it happens in various ways throughout the menstrual cycle. So for instance, when your estrogen and progesterone are plummeting because there's no fertilized embryo in the uterus, day one through five, that's a time where, did you see, did you see the book, The Red Tent? Did you read that book by any chance? Mm, no. Well, the idea is that day one through five, we women belong in a red tent. And that really fits because we don't really want to deal with the outside world at least a lot of us don't. Hmm. We want to be surrounded by other women. We want some girlfriend medicine. We want to take it easy. And it's a, it's a time where your energy can be a lot lower. You know, I always, I always tell people in terms of, you know, like when they do their, their uh, strength training and kind of their gains and their hardest work during the menstrual cycle, go after that day 12 through 14. Don't go after it day one through five. It's a time that's really, uh, I would say it points you in the direction of rest. So yes, there's all these feedback loops so that as estrogen and progesterone plummet, that then triggers FSH to increase, that gets the follicle ready so that you've got an egg that's ready to ovulate. Hey, it's Jeff. And when it comes to your health and longevity, you hold nothing back. You understand what it means to push harder and reach farther and go that extra mile. Well, this relentless drive runs in your blood. That's why Inside Tracker provides you with a personalized plan to build strength, speed recovery, and optimize your health for the long haul. 
created by leading scientists in aging, genetics, and biometrics, Inside Tracker analyzes your blood, your DNA, and fitness tracking data to identify where you're optimized and where you're not. You'll get a daily action plan with personalized guidance for the right exercise, nutrition, and supplementation for your body. And when you connect Inside Tracker with your Fitbit or Garmin, you'll also unlock real-time recovery pro tips after you complete your workout. It's like having your own personal trainer and nutritionist right there in your pocket. If you're interested in this innovative service, I've got great news for Commune listeners. For a limited time, you can get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. Just go to insidetracker.com forward slash Dr. G. That's insidetracker.com forward slash DRG. Okay, so let me see if I understand this part of the um, of the seasonal calendar. So, in response to estrogen, the uterine wall um, grows because it's waiting potentially for a fertilized egg to get implanted, right? Yes. But then, when that let's say doesn't happen, which is on more occasion than not, that the the decline in estrogen and progesterone, um, because the uterine lining is so dependent on those hormones, then it begins to essentially, those cells begin to die and it sloughs off. And then that's what leads into the menstruation part of the cycle. Is that a fair understanding? Yeah, that's accurate. So the way, the way that I think of it is that you're almost at a fork in the road hmm. when you finish you know, let's just go to day 28. So day 28, if you don't have a fertilized embryo that's there in the uterus, ready to be attended to, then you're going to shed the lining. So you, you know, hopefully it's about five days. It's not too heavy. It's not too painful. You've got a relatively normal menstrual cycle. On the other hand, if you've got a fertilized embryo that made its way, you know, usually fertilization occurs in the tubes. We haven't talked about the fallopian tubes, but mm. The egg travels, comes out of the follicle, in the ovary, it travels, it goes on this great journey through the fallopian tube. It's right at the junction. I used to study this in college. It's right at the junction of the isthmus and the ampulla of the fallopian tube. Wow. That fertilization occurs. And then that fertilized egg will come down to the uterus. And if that's the case, instead of dropping your estrogen and progesterone, you actually make more. Yeah. So you start mm. to make different types of estrogen. You make estriol as opposed to estradiol, which is the main hormone of the menstrual cycle and the most potent form of estrogen. Estrogen is like this huge family, um, some of which is functional, some of which is dysfunctional. And so estriol is the main estrogen that you make when you're pregnant. And then you start to make more progesterone to support the growth of that fertilized egg that becomes an embryo. So there's kind of a fork in, in the road at day 28. And uh, when pregnancy occurs, you don't have that drop in estrogen and progesterone. You take the road less traveled. That's right. Um, so women are born with all of their eggs. So I've been told. How does that one egg win um, that particular month? Now, I know that 
if I have a vague understanding that sort of the in response to FSH, there's sort of a sac that forms around an egg and the dominant egg sort of wins the day and, and, and that's the one that drops down the fallopian tube. Help me untangle that a little bit. So that's accurate. I, I don't know, you know, I'm thinking about the last time that I really studied this and it's probably been, I don't know, 20 years. You're doing pretty good. Um, if, if you remember Isthmus or whatever that was, I was like, damn. I well, I, like, I did write a few scientific papers on that topic. So yeah. that is well recorded in my brain. But in terms of how it gets selected, I don't know the answer, Jeff. I don't know. We'll, uh, can I get back to you on that one? Please do. You'll be seeing plenty of me. Yeah. <laughs> There'll be plenty of opportunity. Maybe it's random. I don't know. I need to look that up. So I'll throw a little curveball. I mean, not with a tremendous amount of velocity. Um, when you take the pill, what is happening there on top of the process that you just so eloquently described and... I'll just asterisk this, that I'm sure that you saw that there is an over-the-counter pill that was now approved by the FDA. So maybe we'll cubbyhole that conversation, sure. the interesting one. Sure. Um, but what's happening when, when you're on the pill there? Great question. So millions and millions of women take the birth control pill. And in fact, what I see in terms of a trend is that women are being prescribed the birth control pill at older and older ages as a way of dealing with perimenopause and menopause. Hmm. And I do not believe that that is the right approach. So what's happening in terms of mechanism of action is that you're blocking ovulation with the birth control pill. So the birth control pill contains a synthetic estrogen, a synthetic progesterone known as progestin, and that those two together block ovulation. They do a few other things too, like they make the cervical mucus thicker, so it's harder for sperm to penetrate the cervical mucus. Hmm. We haven't talked about the cervical mucus cycle as a subset of the menstrual cycle, but that's another phenomenon. And um, those are the main effects in terms of mechanism of action of the birth control pill. Side note, I believe that the birth control pill is the number one endocrinopathy or hormone problem that clinicians cause in the female body. Hmm. So the issue with the birth control pill, on the one hand, some hail it as a feminist invention because it gave women more choice and it gave them more reproductive freedom. So amen to that in terms of what happened in the 1960s and 1970s. But when I was taught to prescribe the birth control pill, I was never taught to give full informed consent, to tell people, for instance, that, okay, I'm gonna prescribe this birth control pill. It's gonna deplete you of B vitamins. It's gonna deplete you of magnesium. So you need to take extra amounts of this, either from your mm. food or from a supplement. It's going to increase the inflammation in your body by about two to three fold, as measured by a biomarker like C-reactive protein. Mm. And so that may or may not register as a problem for you, but you might have some weight gain associated with it. It's going to lower your free testosterone. So the great irony here is that a lot of women take the birth control pill because they want to have sex and they want to have reproductive freedom. They don't want to get pregnant. And yet they are losing their libido because yeah. their, their free testosterone is lower. And then probably the most important part of the informed consent 
is that when you lower the free testosterone, and I'll explain how this happens in a moment, it can shrink the clitoris by up to 20%. So that's why I think the birth control pill is the number one endocrinopathy that mm. is iatrogenic, meaning caused by the person prescribing the birth control pill. And just a quick mechanism of action, when you take oral estrogen, which is usually ethanol estradiol in the birth control pill, that raises something called sex hormone binding globulin, which is kind of like the sponge that soaks up free hormone. So when you go on the birth control pill, sex hormone binding globulin rises and that soaks up free testosterone. And mm. there are some women who have a low level of free testosterone. They still have good libido. They don't have any vaginal dryness. They do just fine. I think of them as having the Prius type of receptor for testosterone. It just keeps on going regardless of a low level of fuel. And then there are people who have the more Hummer type of receptor for testosterone and you drop below a certain level and they're like, I have no sex drive anymore. I have mm. vaginal dryness. Mm. Why is this happening? I'm 23. So I think it's important to realize that there's a lot of risks associated with the birth control pill. That's the point I wanted to make. Yeah. So it sounds like, um, that in my case, if your daughters were interested in taking the birth control pill or even trying to force you to let them take the birth control <laughs> yes, pill, let's that's say, more accurate. Yes. Um, this is completely hypothetical, of course, right, right. um, that, uh, and a father were to relent for various different reasons, um, that potentially supplementing either, um, with, uh, exogenous supplements like magnesium or a B-complex vitamin um, might be advisable in that case, or making sure that they're getting excess of that in food. That's right. So I have a food first approach. I think that's yeah. the best way to go. It can be difficult, especially with B vitamins and with magnesium to get enough from food. Mm -hmm. But you know, if you're really into wheat germ and uh, foods <laughs> that contain magnesium, walnuts, go for it. But um, what I find in terms of depletions is most people need a supplement, and that's where a multivitamin can be helpful. The other point I want to make about the birth control pill and this issue with free testosterone is that if you, there was one study that was done looking at women who stopped the birth control pill, and they looked at the sex hormone binding globulin levels, and they found that they did not go back to normal a year later. Mm. And that really like raises my hackles because women are not being told about this. They're not receiving full informed consent. And we really don't know the long-term consequences of how we're changing the menstrual cycle and the hormonal milieu that women are meant to have. Mm -hmm. So it's a little lower than it was when they were on the birth control pill, but even a year later, it's still elevated. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Are there any other lifestyle protocols that you might suggest um, to naturally raise testosterone levels? Well, testosterone is tricky because yeah. what we know, I mean, here, I feel like you're asking perhaps about the women who begin to have a decline in testosterone. We can document that as early as late 20s. Mm -hmm. So depending on how much stress you have, also how much sugar you have, 
testosterone can decline faster than the normal amount. So mm -hmm. normally in women, it declines about 1% per year, mm, beginning right. in your 20s. Same thing with DHEA, which is part of the androgen family. And so some of these lifestyle things that can really make a difference are dancing with stress in a way that really works for you. So I am a fan of the a la carte menu of all the different ways of dancing with stress. You've got your ways. Mm -hmm. You came in with a mala when I saw you earlier. That's, that's, a, that's a great way. way. Yeah. Totally. I love meditation, orgasm. There's lots of different ways to manage stress. And then being really careful about refined carbohydrates, which lower testosterone. There's also certain supplements. I've been underwhelmed by the, um, there's a lot of promises that are made with different supplements in terms of raising testosterone naturally. And I feel like probably it's more about the way you dance with stress and really the, the sugar issue. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, I have a question that I'll save for the next oh, one. Can I say the, one other quick thing? Oh, though? please do. Yeah. Okay. So we mapped out the seasons of the menstrual cycle and I just want to layer in for a moment some of the laboratory testing, because mm. that always confuses people. So if you're someone who wants to check their estrogen level, or maybe you're trying to figure out, okay, I'm 34, how much more time do I have in terms of my egg quality? Mm -hmm. What we do is a day three FSH and estradiol level. Now that okay. was originally developed to look at uh, whether someone would be successful with in vitro fertilization. And it's become a test that we do on people who are just trying to understand what's going on with their fertility. So we're looking at day three estradiol. It should be pretty low, like 20 or less. Right. And then we're looking at FSH. And it also should be pretty low, like less than 10 on day three. If you want to look at your max estradiol, that would be day 12. So that's when it reaches a peak. It then reaches a second peak that's not as high around day 21. Day 21 in a 28-day cycle is when you peak with your progesterone. And that's one of the ways of checking for ovulation. There's two main ways to check for ovulation. Hmm. Day 21 progesterone, some people do it day 22. And then you can also look for the LH surge, right. which occurs typically around day 12 or 13. And that is the precursor to releasing the progesterone and ovulation. So um, those are the pee sticks that people do when they're trying to get pregnant and they're checking right. for fertility and ovulation. Got it. And so you mentioned ovulation tends to be around two days. Is that right? No, ovulation is, well, it, well, it occurs in that window. In that window. So typically around day 14 or mm -hmm. day 15, it's basically just when the egg just erupts the egg. out of the follicle. So it's Got pretty it. fast. Got it. I guess what I'm trying to say is, what is the average window in which that egg could be fertilized? Oh, that's, that's gotcha. Okay. So women ovulate at different times. I've been really mm -hmm. surprised about that. You know, there's some people who are like clockwork, like I was, where I would ovulate day 14, you know, month after month. Mm -hmm. And that is called incessant ovulation. That's like a conversation for another time. Okay. Nuns do it. Sarah Godfrey did it. Anyway, so the, that's, but the, also, that's the only thing you have in common with a nun. <laughs> no, I think you're right about that. I think you're very right about that. Although Pema Chodron, Jeff, Pema okay, Chodron, I want to yeah, have more in common with her. Yeah, but I, I yeah, okay. I'll revise. You have a lot in common with a nun. Oh, thank you. 
So the other, you know, I've seen a lot of women who ovulate really late. They ovulate mm -hmm. like day 20. Mm -hmm. But in terms of this meetup right. with the sperm, it's about a, a five-day window. Oh, it's that long? It can't be, at okay. least when I last looked at this um, 15, 20 years ago. Yeah, okay. Maybe there's an update that people will give us comments about. All right. Um, well, I'll tease this out if you want to answer it, or we can save it. But I love the name of it is the corpus luteum you know about the corpus luteum <laughs> I, I just think it's the most wonderful name and i was like hmm, i need to learn more about the corpus luteum and i i think that that happens kind of more in the maybe in the later phases of the cycle is that right and and and, and it's after the egg drops and it's uh, in that period where it's um well maybe you can help me out i can i i, I don't know do you know what this is I know what it is. I don't know that I can speak intelligently about it, mm -hmm. but the corpus luteum is basically, it's part of that fork in the road for right. whether you're just going to get your menstrual cycle and kind of circle back to the day one, or the corpus luteum is then going to go on to support the pregnancy. Right. Right. That's right. Okay. Well, this has been extremely helpful, very informative, particularly for us dunderhead Neanderthal dads. We're doing the best that we can. <laughs> um, and I think just for everyone to understand the nature of this cycle, which is just, as you say, it's happening for in the, in, in the average woman for 40, 42, 43 years. It's a long time. It's a long time. And it's such a central part, as, as you say, of, of, of mood and has so many different interrelated parts. So I think the more that we can sort of just demystify it and talk about it and joke about it, um, I think the better it is for everyone. So thanks so much. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to our new Ask Dr. G series. Now, if you enjoy this show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. Of course, feel free to reach out to me directly at any time at jeffk at onecommune.com. Lastly, I'd like to thank the folks that make this show possible, including Jacob Laub, Megan Stone, Violet Augustine, Silvana Alcala, Wellington Gonzalez, and Ryan Tillotson. Okay, that's all from the commune for today. My name is Jeff Krasno, and I am here for you. <laughs>